Today we're continuing our series called Evidence, where we've been looking at, are we as Christians just supposed to believe in blind faith, or, you know, we believe just because the Bible tells us so, or is it that we have some facts that we can look at, that we can investigate? And so today we're continuing in the series by looking at that, and as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, the probably leading detective in all the United States, the guy that's been on Dateline NBC more than anybody else as a guest, he's a cold case expert, his name is Jay Warner Wallace, and he's taught us four questions we can ask when investigating eyewitness testimony. Remember, we don't trust eyewitnesses, right? What do we do? We, we have to do what? We have to... Yeah, we have to test eyewitnesses, and there's four questions that we do to test eyewitness testimony. First of all, we ask, were they actually present? Right, that, that would help if you're actually there. Were, were they present or not? And then last week, we looked at, you know, cooperation. And so you always have to ask about, is there some sort of cooperation that can show that, yes, what they're saying is true? The third question you always need to ask is, is the eyewitness, are they being honest over time, or is their story continuing to change? And then the final question you ask is, is there bias? You know, are they biased? Are they prejudiced? Is there some sort of ulterior motive that they may have that, you know, would sort of encourage them to be lying about what it is that they say they're being eyewitnesses about? And what we've been doing throughout the series is we've been looking at, okay, can we apply those four questions to the Gospels? And so we've looked and we've said that, yes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were actually present. They were really there at the scene, reporting on what it is that they say that they uh, were seeing. And then last week, we talked about cooperation, and we saw that there's both internal and external cooperation to prove that, yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're actually there. They're actually writing about it. My favorite part from last week was the part I was talking to you about, the skeptics, the skeptics of Jesus' day that lived during his time. And I think it was so cool because what I share with you is we could get rid of all 27 books of the New Testament, all of them, get rid of them. They were never, ever written. They were never even discovered, you know, nothing. And we can look at just the five guys that were critics of Christianity that lived during Jesus' day. They were writing about Christianity, trying to disprove it, but yet they unintentionally corroborate the gospel message. That basically, you can read the gospel just in their writings. And so that was really, really cool. But just because they were present, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just because their story can be corroborated, does that mean that it's true? And well, we're not there yet. We've got to continue to ask these questions. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that third question of, has the story changed over time? Have they been honest and accurate? Again, the skeptics, we've talked about this throughout the series, they say that the Gospels were written late, you know, two, three hundred years after Jesus' supposed resurrection by people just claiming to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John living in Africa and living in Europe. So that's what most of the skeptics say. However, there are some skeptics that they go, okay, we'll give it to you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were actually real people. They actually wrote about Jesus and so they'll say, you know, we believe that there was such a guy named Jesus, and we believe that, you know, he was a good teacher of morals, and we believe he was actually executed by the Romans. 
But what they believe is that the Gospels became like the telephone game. Remember playing the telephone game as a kid where one person says something, they whisper it in the ear to the next person, keep whispering it. By the time you get to the end of the line, like it's a completely different story. So they believe that's what happened, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write about this good moral guy named Jesus. He was a great teacher and everything. Again, the execution, they believe all that was true. But what they think is that as it got copied one generation to the next, what ended up happening was people started to insert some extra things in or it just got sort of manipulated a little bit. And so it went from Jesus being this good moral teacher that then all of a sudden he was a good moral teacher who could also do some miracles. And then as it kept going on to the next generation, well, how do you explain miracles? Well, he must be God. And so, okay, that got added in and, well, now he's claiming to be God. And then ultimately he's executed by the Romans, but you can't keep God dead, right? So now he rose again from the dead, and now we get to 363 AD when they put together the New Testament and what we call the Bible then, and all of a sudden all these stories have made it into the Gospels. So that's one argument that people make, is that it's like the telephone game. The other argument is this. They say, how do we know that the copies weren't like just copy as errors. We, we talked about this the other week. You know, when you're texting somebody, you know, you're, you're texting, and then all of a sudden you read it after you already hit send, and you're like, ah, oh, man, <laughs> you know, there's a spelling mistake or there's something else. And so what they say is, how do we know that as the copyist kept going, there wasn't like little mistakes that started to get in, and then the next generation got it, and they added some more mistakes, and it was all unintentional, but how do we know that these things didn't just keep happening and happening and happening and happening? All of a sudden, you have something that doesn't even look like the original document at all. So that's what we're going to look at today, is the telephone game theory that they have for the Gospels and the copyist mistake theories that they have for the Gospels as well. Let's go back to a timeline we've been looking at throughout. They're going to put it on the screen here for you. And if you remember Jesus, his life and his ministry, uh, well, he's born at the beginning, but his actual ministry is 30 to 33 uh, AD there. And then, you know, the, what we call the Bible isn't actually put together until 363 AD at the Council of Laodicea. It was there that they take all the different documents that are floating around and they say, these are the ones we believe are true, these are the ones that are false. They put together those 27 into what we call the New Testament. They bound those together with the 39 books of the, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and together that becomes what we call the B-I-B-L-E, the 66 books. Um, yes, that's the book for me, I guess. <laughs> Since I went there already, I might as well just <laughs> I might as well finish it, right? <laughs> so, as we've been looking throughout the series... The first two weeks, the skeptics, they say, well, the Gospels were all written late on the timeline by people just claiming to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They weren't really those guys. Again, written in Africa, written in Europe, written late. But we've taken the last two weeks now to look that there's a pretty compelling case that, no, the Gospel writers actually were present and their writings can be corroborated so that the Gospels were actually written early on the timeline by real people named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, though, just because they're written early doesn't mean that they're true. So we got to go to the next thing, and we need to say, okay, were they tampered with in any way, or, you know, what's going on? So this is where J. Warner Wallace says that to understand whether a story is being changed over time or not, 
we need to understand how a crime scene really works. So they're going to put another graphic here on the, the screen for you. Imagine that there's a, a crime, and at the crime, a bullet casing is found at the crime scene. Can you see the bullet casing there at the crime scene? Okay. Now, eventually, there's going to be a trial. That same bullet casing needs to make it to the courtroom. Do you see the, the bullet casing now in the courtroom? Here's the question. How do we know that the same bullet that's in the courtroom is the same bullet that was at the crime scene? How do we even know that that bullet casing was at the crime scene? How do we know, for example, that there wasn't some sort of like lying detective who came along and he plants it at the crime scene? Or maybe he later on went into the evidence locker and he plants it in there, which then leads to an unsuspecting criminalist, you know, a CSI type of person. They're doing the forensics on it. How do we know that this unsuspecting person isn't taking this bullet casing that was planted? They're examining it as if there was real evidence. And then later on, there's an unsuspecting detective who shows up at the trial, and he's testifying about a bullet that wasn't even actually there. That's a good question, right? How do we know that the same bullet that was at the crime is the bullet that's at the courtroom? And was it even there? And see, this is what the skeptics say about Christianity. They say that as time went on, Somebody was a lying author. They started to add extra things into the story. Go ahead and put that up, guys. The lying author, is that up there? There we go. There's a lying author. And what does lying author do? He's putting extra exaggeration in. Again, that, oh, Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus rose again from the dead. And what does that lead as the generations go on? Now there's unsuspecting followers. So this lying author has tricked people into believing stuff that really wasn't true at all. And what's that mean then? Well, it means that as that continues on from one generation to the next, ultimately we get to 363 AD and good people unintentionally have been reading stories that they think is true, and they combine it all together, and they form what is called the Bible. So again, that, that's the argument that's made. How do we know? Well, let's go back to the bullet again. How do we know that the bullet was really there? And this is where J. Warner Wallace says that we've got to understand what's called a chain of custody. Chain of custody. Look at the graphic again. So here's our crime scene. At the crime scene, the first person that shows up, the first responder is a police officer. And the police officer, he first of all clears the scene, makes sure that everything's okay. And then if you've watched TV or watched movies, what do they do? They get out the crime scene tape, right? That yellow tape. And what do they do? They put it all around the perimeter of the crime scene. What are they trying to do? They're trying to make sure that the scene remains intact, that there's no tampering that's going on. Now, the next person that shows up onto the scene, oh, by the way, before I, I get to that, the police officer, he's going to probably take some pictures of things that he or she has observed, and when they do a written report, they're going to write about, in this case, you know, found a bullet casing. The next people that show up onto the scene then are the detectives. 
Now the detectives, they're trying to recreate what happened here. What are the things that were here just naturally? And what are the things that probably shouldn't be here? Like a bullet casing probably shouldn't be laying here on the ground. How did that bullet casing get there? So they're trying to put it all together. And again, what this person's going to do is they're going to take some pictures. They're going to write up some reports. And then they're going to take, again, if you're watching the TV, they're going to take some tweezers. They're going to take some you know, uh, latex gloves. They're going to put them on. And they're going to take that bullet casing. They're going to put it into a little baggie. And they're going to tag it with you know, a number or some sort of written uh, type of label. Bag it and tag it, right? So what are they going to do with it now? Well, now they're going to take it into the crime lab. And now you're going to have somebody that's going to do the forensics on it. They're going to try to determine what type of, you know, caliber of bullet was it. Is there any fingerprints that were on the casing there? So they're, they're trying to examine it. What are they doing? They're going to take some more pictures. They're going to write reports. So the police officer wrote reports, took pictures. The detectives, they were taking pictures. They were writing reports. Now the forensic scientists, they're writing uh, reports. They're taking some pictures of it. Next, once they're done, it needs to be stored somewhere safely. So it goes into an evidence room. In the evidence room now, there is a person, their full-time job is just to book things in and out of evidence. Everything that goes in and everything that comes out, they document that. They document who brought it in, who takes it out, who's investigating, who's not investigating. They're, they're doing all this tracking of it. Again, they have detailed records of everything that's in that, that room there, that evidence room. Now, ultimately, when a trial comes around, a detective probably is going to come pick up all the evidence to bring it to the trial. Again, the person in the evidence room, they're tracking that, but now this new person has uh, touched it, and they're, they're taking it to the trial, and ultimately it ends up in the courtroom. So how this whole chain of custody works is this. The more people who have been writing about it, in this case the bullet casing, the more people that have been doing reports about it, the more confident the jury can be that, oh, okay, this bullet was actually there. Does that make sense? In other words, there's picture after picture after picture that traces it all the way back to the original scene. There's reports that traces it all the way back to the original scene. And again, the more of those types of copies you can have, the more confident you can be that, yes, this bullet casing actually was there. The question then becomes, is there that type of chain of custody when it comes to the Gospels? And the answer is yes. Look at the bottom part of the, the graphic there. So we still have the timeline of Jesus. So let's think of, of Jesus and his ministry time. That's the crime scene, so to speak. The Council of Laodicea, when they formalized the Scriptures, 363 A.D., that's going to be the courtroom. How do we know that the same documents that you and I read today in the Bible are the same ones that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote? Is there a chain of custody that we can see as it goes through? And again, the answer is yes. We can see that the council, we're seeing pictures showing up over and over and over and over again. They kept telling the same story. Let me give you an example of this. They're going to put this up on the... Uh, the screen for you. This is just from the Apostle John. 
this is sort of the, the timeline. Again, you see the, the ministry of Jesus. You see the Council of Laodicea. And this is a graphic that Jane Warner Wallace includes in his book, Cold Case Christianity. So that's why it looks a little different than the graphics that I've been making uh, for the series. But here, here's the Apostle John. Remember, he was Jesus' best friend. He's, he's one of Jesus' followers. And we're going to liken John to a police officer. He's the first responder. He shows up on the scene, and he sees what it is that Jesus is doing. He hears all the things that Jesus is saying. And so what does he do? He writes a report. He takes a picture, so to speak, of the scene. What do we call that? What's the report that John wrote? The Gospel of John. See, you're a very smart crowd. I'm appreciative of you guys. Those of you online, I didn't see what you typed in, but I anticipate you're pretty smart too. It's the Gospel of John. He, he writes this report. Now, when we get to the Council of Laodicea in 363, are they just saying, oh, okay, we're just going to have to trust that what John was saying was true? No, they're looking, is there a chain of custody that goes right on through? Remember, one of the things we always talk about here at Exponential is that we are not just called to be disciples ourselves. We're called to do what? To do what? Make disciples who do what? Make disciples who in turn do what? So this applied to John as well. So John was a disciple of Jesus. John was then told to make disciples. Did John have any disciples who we still have their writings to this day? And the answer is yes, we do. Two of them, they're on the screen. I'll tell you about the third one. So one is uh, named Ignatius. Another is Polycarp. The third one is Papias. As we look at uh, Ignatius, there are seven letters that he wrote. This is a disciple of John, okay? There are seven letters that he wrote that we still have to this day. And in his letters, he refers to seven to 16 different books of what eventually becomes the New Testament, including Matthew, including Luke, including all the writings of John, and many of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Papias, who's the one that's not pictured here, he was one of the disciples of John, None of his writings survive to this day. However, his disciples, Papias' disciples, they write that their, their teacher, their disciple maker, Papias, had written extensively about what he had learned from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have a final guy here, Polycarp. One of his letters survives to this day. And in it, it references anywhere from 14 to 16 of what we today would call New Testament books, including all four of the Gospels, the writings of Peter, many of the writings of Paul, and other letters that John wrote as well. Now, the question then becomes, okay, do we have somebody then that they discipled? The answer is yes. You see him there on the screen. His name is Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus, he references in his writings 24 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And notice the dates there. He's doing this in 185. Uh, the, the previous generation was in 110 A.D. Okay, so this is very early. John, he writes his gospel uh, or his writings from 70 A.D. to 90 A.D. He writes five different things. So 70 A.D. to 90 A.D. is when he's writing. So you see these writings just after from the next generation and then the next generation. And remember, what we're doing is we're looking to see, is the writing changing at all? Are there any mistakes being made? Is there any extra material that's being added? Is Jesus' story and who Jesus is, is it changing? Did he go from being just a good moral man, just a good teacher, and now they're adding extra things in? And as we start looking at these things, we see the answer is no. 
the same story that, that Irenaeus is talking about, about Jesus as the same one that Polycarp and Ignatius and Papias was talking about, which is the same one that the Apostle John was talking about. Now the question is, did Irenaeus then have a disciple? The answer is yes. In 220 AD, we have the writings from Hippolytus. Again, he references 24 of the 27, what eventually become uh, books of the New Testament. So it's all making sense. Remember, there is no such thing as the Bible until 363. But yet these letters are floating around from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the other letters that eventually become the New Testament. So they're floating around, and we see here on this timeline, other people are referencing these 27 letters. Now, I'm not going to go in as much detail with other uh, chain of command, but we can do the same thing with both the Apostle Peter and with the Apostle Paul. Go put that up there. They're both there. That we have an extensive chain of, uh, or not chain of command, chain of custody is what I, I uh, meant to say. So Peter, he doesn't have a gospel. Remember we, we learned the other week there was a fake gospel that was written you know, much later, but that got rejected. Peter doesn't actually have a gospel. He has some other letters that were, uh, that were authenticated as being real, but there isn't a gospel of Peter. But we learned that Peter had a disciple. His name was Mark. What does Mark do? Mark writes what we call the gospel of Mark. Mark has a disciple then, Avilius, who has a disciple, uh, Aeneas, whose disciple is Kedron, whose disciple is Primus, whose disciple is Justice, whose disciple is Pantanus, whose disciple is Clement. And we see there in 2.10, Clement is referencing 22 books of what eventually becomes the New Testament. Clement has a disciple. His name is Origen. 20, all 27 books of the New Testament, Origen is writing about in 250 AD. On the Pamphilus, who was his disciple, and then Pamphilus' disciple is a guy by the name of uh, Eusebius. And in 335, he again, he's writing about all 27 books that by 363 then are authenticated as being real. Same thing with the Apostle Paul. Paul, he has a disciple named Linus, who has a disciple named Clement, who has a disciple named Aravetus, who has a disciple named Alexander, who has a disciple named Sixtus, who has a disciple named Telephorus, who has a disciple named Hygienus. Are you glad we changed how we name kids today? Uh, who has a disciple named Irenaeus, who has a disciple by the name of Justin Martyr, who has a disciple by the name of Tatian. You see there in 175 AD, Tatian is referencing 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament. We're talking only, you know, about 100 years later. 20 of the books there are being referenced, and eventually they all make it there to um, the, the Council of Laodicea, and they're authenticated as being real. Isn't that amazing? Here's what you need to understand. These are like that chain of custody that we saw with the bullet casing that you keep seeing pictures, so to speak, over and over and over again. You keep seeing written reports over and over and over again. And again, what we're looking for is, is the story changing or not? And the answer is, it's not. It's not. As we go through each one of them, they're all referencing the same thing over and over and over again. And I think the coolest part of this is this. John's line eventually is being written primarily in Asia, Paul's line eventually is being written primarily in Europe, while Peter's line is being primarily written in Africa. So 
It's the same stories being told all the time on three different continents. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have telephones. They didn't have text messaging. They didn't have email to be able to say, you know, hundreds of years later, as they're continuing to be discipled and they're writing about what they're learning, they're not calling each other up or texting each other going, hey, we need to keep our story straight. What are you saying about Jesus? Because, you know, we got to make sure that we're all writing the same thing. They're not doing that. They didn't have that type of technology. But yet, as you examine it over and over and over again, the stories stay consistent. They stay the same year after year, decade after decade, century after century, until finally at 363 A.D., the Council of Laodicea compares all the documents that were floating around, and they see which ones actually have a chain of custody, which ones don't. And they took some of the other things we looked at the last two weeks of where they really present. Is there corroborating evidence or not? And they determine which ones were real and which ones were not real. And that's how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, were deemed as real, authentic, reliable sources of history, along then with the other 22 books of what we would call the New Testament. Same thing we did last week with the five people that were the critics of Christianity. I said we could throw out all the New Testament, and if we just had those five documents from the critics, we could still make a pretty compelling case for Jesus and the resurrection. We can do the same thing here. If we never had the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, never had the book of Acts, never had the other 22 books of the New Testament, and all we had was the writings of the next generation, so who did the disciples disciple? And we just had their writings. We would still be able to basically put together everything that's in the New Testament, like verse by verse, scripture by scripture. Story by story, you could put it all together just in these writings from the disciples of the original disciples. All right, let's switch gears here for a minute. The skeptics say that since no original copies of the New Testament still exist to this day, that means that we shouldn't be able to trust it. Because what we're doing is we're trusting copies of copies of copies of copies. And how could you possibly ever trust something like that? Now, you may be wondering, well, why don't we have, like, the original copy or the original writings anymore? Well, to understand that, you have to understand what the disciples would have been writing on. It was a material called papyrus. It was an early form of paper. It was not meant to be something, and they never really intended, I guess, that it was going to last for century after century after century after century. They're just trying to pass it on, you know, to their, to their friends. It's sort of like this. Remember when fax machines first came out and they were on thermal paper? You remember that? Young guys that are shaking their head, they're like, well, they're asking, what's a fax machine? You know, but... <laughs> But this thermal paper, what it did is it like had this heat process that put the ink uh, on it. But what ended up happening was as the months and then the years would go on, it would fade off of the paper and you couldn't read it anymore. So if you remember, those of you that had it, what you would do is you would get a fax over the telephone and you would take that immediately to a copier. Now, we didn't do it at first because we didn't realize it was going to fade, but eventually we got smart to it, and we would take it immediately and then to a copier, and we would make a copy of that fax that had come through. Why? Because we wanted that document to last much longer than what that fax paper was going to last. Now, just because it was copied, does that mean that what was on the original fax wasn't true anymore? No. You just made a copy of 
the original thing. But what the, the skeptics will say is, well, again, since we don't have that original copy of the Gospels, and we just have copies of copies, surely mistakes were made. Surely it's not authentic. Now, there's two words you need to understand here. An original of anything is what's called an autograph. We think of autographs as something that, you know, you, you go and you get from a person. Um, and and that, that is partially why we get that terminology, because you went to the original person and you got their autograph. If you have an original autograph from a celebrity or whatever, that's going to be worth money. If you get a copy of that, you can't get money for that. So you want the original autograph. Copies, then, are what are called manuscripts. Okay, you seeing the difference? So autograph is the original. Manuscripts are any copies after. Why is it called a manuscript? Because it was manually copied. It's a manual script that somebody copied down. And again, the skeptics are saying, we can't trust the New Testament because all we have is these copies of copies of copies of copies. The problem with that, though, is if we throw out all the New Testament manuscripts, then that means we also have to throw out secular writers like Caesar, Homer, Aristotle, Josephus, Plato, Plenty the Elder, Plenty the Younger, Tacitus, and that's just to name a few. But yet there's nobody today, the skeptics included, that would say that they don't believe that there was real people by the name of Tacitus or Plato or Aristotle. There's nobody that would be a skeptic that they would say, oh, well, we can't trust what they wrote because all we have left is copies of the copies of the copies. But yet that's what the skeptics try to do when it comes to the New Testament. But let me show you why they can't have their cake and eat it too. They're going to put this on the screen for you. This is comparing ancient manuscripts of when they were written, when we have the first copy of, the gap in time between the original and the manuscript, and then the total amount of manuscripts that we have. Now, by the way, because of archaeology, these numbers change all the time because new things get dug up. And the latest findings that I had it was last updated in 2017. So this is even, I'm just telling you, this is going to be out of date. But it's going to give you the idea uh, of what happens here. So let's just do the first guy there, Tacitus. We talked about him last week. Wrote about the time right after Jesus, a severe critic of Christianity, one of the biggest skeptics. He's writing primarily about the Roman Empire. We have fragments of what he wrote, or uh, he wrote, I should say, in 110 AD. The earliest fragments that we have of any of his writings are from 850 A.D., and we don't have his full writings until 1050 A.D. So there's a gap between the original autograph of when he wrote it to the earliest copy that we have, even a fragment, of 750 years. And then we only have 36 copies of what he wrote. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them, but let's uh, skip down to Plato, because you learned about Plato in high school, and you're told what Plato wrote is history. You can trust his history. Plato wrote in about the 400s uh, BC, and then we have early fragments in the third century uh, BC, and then full a uh, little bit after that. So there's a gap of about 200 years between what Plato wrote and then what we actually have physical copies of to this day. And then, again, we only have 238 copies of it. 
Now let's skip down to the New Testament. And even this is, is updated, and I was able to find a little bit of uh, this, but uh, as of 2017, the earliest manuscript fragment that we had was in 125 A.D., which is a 30-year gap from when the time it was written. Uh, and I'll get to the manuscripts here in a second. But we now have a fragment from the Gospel of John that dates to 114 A.D. Now, keep in mind that John wrote his Gospel in 90 A.D. So what is that? A gap of 24 years between the original autograph and the manuscript that we have. We also have a fragment that was found of the Gospel of Matthew from about that same time. Now, Matthew wrote his Gospel, the original autograph, the late 50s to early 60s. So there's about a 50 to 60 year gap there. But again, much earlier than some of these others that were looking hundreds of years between the autograph and any manuscripts that we have. Uh, just to give you some more numbers here, the uh, first complete book, of the New Testament that we have is from 200 A.D. We have almost all the New Testament documents, complete manuscripts by 250, and we have all of them by 325 A.D. And again, that even lines up well within the gap of time of these others that everybody, including the skeptics, say, yeah, we trust Plato, we trust Aristotle, we trust Tacitus, we trust all these other people, but yet they say, but we can't do that for the Bible. We can't do that for the New Testament. But then here's the last number. 5,856 complete manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. Now, other than Homer's writings that we have 1,900 of, the rest of them we don't even have 500 of. We have 5,856. Again, that was as of 2017, so I'm sure that there's more than that now. Much more. It's amazing. And, you know, what I haven't mentioned to you yet is that uh, well, actually, I did mention to you, these copies were found all around the world. Africa, Asia, Europe. And what's amazing is how meticulous the copywriters were in making the copies. And I think I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. Part of that has to do with many of the early Christians were obviously Jewish. And if you've ever studied the, the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, and how they had the rules for to make copies, oh my goodness. I mean, they knew the exact word that was in the middle. Now, keep in mind, the Old Testament is much bigger than the, the New Testament, right? So they knew exactly what is the word in the middle. You know, so if it's, let's say, you know, 5,000, and it's probably more, but if it's 5,000 words altogether, Here's what word one should be. Here's what word 5,000 should be. And word 2,500 is this. And they had people that after a copy was made, their job then was to go and to verify that, yes, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way through that word 2,500 was the one it was supposed to be. If it wasn't, it got all tore up. The whole thing got tore up and discarded. And they had other ways that they were able to verify to make sure that the copies were exactly done. So keep in mind, again, these early Christians, they had come out of the Jewish tradition of how to make copies. And they brought that over to the New Testament then. And so what we see as we start to compare all these copies that are out there throughout all the generations that led all the way up to the Council of Laodicea, 363 AD. And they're in Africa and Asia and Europe. When you compare them word for word, they are word for word accurate 99.5% of the time. 
the only errors that we have, that 0.5% of errors, changes the meanings in no way at all. The errors are simple punctuation types, of the, or uh, spelling, I should say, because they didn't have um, punctuation, uh, simple uh, spelling mistakes, and things where sometimes a copyist would take like two sentences, or what should have been two sentences, and they would put a connector word like and in. Again, it doesn't change the meaning, it's just it's a longer type of sentence that they had. 99.5% accuracy when it comes to the copies. So they were very, very serious about the importance of passing down from one generation to the next accurate copies. Now, by the way, I haven't mentioned this to you yet. I told you about the uh, 5,800 plus copies of manuscripts that we have to this day. That's just the Greek. What I haven't mentioned yet is there's another 19,000 that date back to that time that are in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic. So not only was it being copied the Greek, but it was already being translated into other languages, and you can compare each of those languages, and it all stays within 99.5% accuracy to one another. My whole point is this. When we look at the chain of custody, it becomes pretty clear that what the gospel writers wrote is what the council of Laodicea received, and they said, yes, this is authentic. In other words, the story of Jesus is not the telephone game. The story of Jesus didn't become a mythic legend as the years went on. What they approved in 363, we can trace back through that chain of custody over and over and over again, all the way back to those very first disciples and the original autographs that they wrote. So it's not the telephone game. It's not copyist mistakes and copyist errors. It's not some, you know, mischievous, lying, you know, quote-unquote author that put extra things in. No, these are the real thing. And so, so far in the series, we've seen that, yes, the gospel writers were present. Yes, there's evidence that corroborates what they said. Today, we saw that the story hasn't changed over time. It's remained consistent. Does that mean it's true yet? Nope, not yet. We still got to keep going. That's what we'll do next week. We're going to look at the gospel authors. Were they biased in any way? Did they have any type of ulterior motive? Is there any type of prejudice that they would have that they would have said, you know what, we should tell this lie because it's really going to get us ahead. We're going to look at that. And then in the final week of the series, what we'll do is we'll wrap it all up. The closing argument, so to speak, right? And I keep saying to you that it's so important that we talk about this because you've got to come to a decision. This whole series has been about don't put your faith into faith. Put your faith into facts. We don't have to just blindly believe. We don't have to believe just because, well, the Bible tells me so. We can believe because all this stuff can be investigated. And we can see that our faith is actually in real things, real documents, real historical events that happen. And the reason it's so important that you do that, and I've said this week after week after week of this series, is if the Gospels, even just one of them, if either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John can be proven to be real, now we have to take seriously all the things Jesus said. Because Jesus did say that he was God. Jesus did say that he had the power over sin and death. Jesus did say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He didn't say through me or Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or just figure it out on your own. 
Jesus is making the claim that he is the only way that you can have eternity with God. And so if it can be proven that he really did rise again from the dead, then we should take his words pretty seriously. And that should change how we live, how we act, how we talk, what we do with our finances, what we do employment-wise, or how we treat our employment. Huge implications. If this is real, huge implications. So that's why in the final week of the series, I'm going to give those closing arguments to you. Here's what we've discovered so far. Then you're going to have to decide. And as I said to you last week, if you decide that, yes, it's real, then, man, you better be all in for Jesus. If you decide that the case that I made for Jesus and his resurrection is not real, then please don't show up anymore. Please don't go. To, why would you waste your time going to a church? Not just this church, any church. Why would you waste your time if it's just a make-believe book of fairy tales? That Jesus is just a, a legend that grew over time. Why would you invest your life into something like that? So this is so, so important. Now, I know many of you, as I'm looking here in the room, and I'm sure many of you online, you've already come to that decision for yourself. But I hope what this series is doing for you as well is it's giving you confidence in your own faith that what I believe is true and it's based off of facts, and that's going to give you the confidence as you're out and about and you're talking to your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friends, especially as we got Thanksgiving coming up this week, right? And you're going to have some unbelieving family members that are going, oh, you still believing in those fairy tales? You know, the, the big genie in the sky? Ha, 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 ha. And you may not remember everything that I've shared in this story, but you're going to be able to have more confidence and say, you know what? Have you ever investigated it? Because there's actual facts that back up what it is that we believe. And they're like, no, there's not. I read something on the Internet one time. <laughs> You're like, all right, well, here's some things I've been learning. And then you can share, you know, say, hey, I, I don't remember all of it, but my pastor has been talking about this over the past couple weeks. Here's, here's the links. Go take a look. Make a decision for yourself. Again, this has eternal consequences. So it's so, so important. So again, I, I hope this is helping to encourage you in your own faith, in your own journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for these uh, past couple weeks as we've been able to investigate the facts of your resurrection and to start to come to our own conclusions. And Lord, some are probably already overwhelmed and going, yep. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Others are still sort of kicking the tires and are skeptical. And so I pray that as we continue throughout the series that they would see that, oh my goodness, every way that they determine whether an eyewitness in a, a murder case is telling the truth, it's the same thing. We were able to do that with the Gospels and that it would change people's hearts and change people's minds. And Lord, I pray that as we determine that this is real, that it would change how we live, how we act, how we think, how we spend our money, what we do with our, our time that Jesus, you are real, and your words have power, your words have significance, and we need to take your words seriously and live for you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus, thank you that you change lives and that when we put our faith in you, that our sin can be forgiven that we can have a brand new life right here and right now. And we can have eternal life with you forever. 
just the peace that that gives us, Lord. Thank you so much. We don't have to worry anymore. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have life and life abundantly, life eternally with you. Again, thank you for that. I pray all this in Jesus' name.